Good morning, everybody. I'm Joe. Um, I work as the student pastor and connections pastor here at Fort Caroline Baptist Church. I'm really honored to be filling in for Pastor Stewart as uh, uh, he's out doing some doctoral work uh, this week uh, out of town, be back in the pulpit next week, um, I'm assuming, and grateful for Pastor Stewart and his family, Taylor and the kids. And, and as we begin today, I'd love for you to uh, uh, just be praying and ask you to pray for Pastor Stewart as he's traveling, as he uh, does his studies. Um, uh, I, your prayer for him and his family is, is so appreciated. Uh, please pray for, our, pray for our entire pastoral staff uh, as we prayerfully lead the congregation of Fort Caroline Baptist Church. Uh, I, and I know that our other pastors uh, and their families truly, truly appreciate uh, your faithful prayers for us and our families. Um, and like I said, I'm excited for Pastor Stewart as uh, he's pursuing his doctoral degree. I uh, want to quote a uh, leadership guru uh, and Pastor Bill Hybels. You might have heard of him. Uh, preaches uh, at a church or used to preach at a church up in uh, uh, called Willow Creek, great church. His uh, quote is, everyone wins when the leader gets better. Everyone wins when the leader gets better. True. And so as Pastor Stewart is pursuing his doctoral work and, and uh, seeking to become a better leader, he's going to help us become a better church. So I want you to pray for him as he's seeking to become a better leader uh, as in the calling that God has placed on his life here at Fort Caroline. Also, I was thinking the other day as Pastor Stewart uh, pursues his doctoral degree, uh, it made me think of a long-running BBC show uh, where the primary character, uh, he's uh, traveling through time, and uh, you, you may know this, okay? So yeah, th th that's the guy. Okay, and so the primary character traveling through time uh, through a, in a phone booth called a TARDIS. You guys, yep, okay. So, uh, and he wields this weapon called the sonic screwdriver. Yeah, and so anyway, I got to thinking about this show because when... Our pastor, Stuart, he's pursuing his doctoral studies. We won't have Dr. Who. We'll have Dr. Stu. I, yeah, I wasn't sure if that would land or not. I wasn't sure if it would land or not, but all right, good. That's good. I talked to Stuart. He's cool with it. He, he's happy with that. So he thought it'd be funny. It's my uh, pop culture reference for the day. One last thing. Uh, before I get into the talk, uh, PSA, a little public service announcement, Valentine's Day is coming up. Uh, Matt briefly mentioned it earlier, but I want to mention the fact that Valentine's Day, very important. If you have someone special in your life, spouse, significant other, please let that person know how much you love them with a special gest gesture, gift, time with him or her. Celebrate your relationship. It matters. There you go. Public service announcement. Now, let's, let's get in today's talk. I know that's what you've all come from. We're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, starting in verse 23, and we'll be reading through chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 6. And it is a, as an aside, as you're turning there in your device or your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to take time as we walk through the Gospel of Mark to read and reread the Gospel on your own. Uh, use various translations, paraphrases to get various nuances of the meaning of the scripture to deepen your own understanding. Pray that God would help you to internalize his word. God uses his word to transform us. Uh, I'm always reminded of the scripture in Romans chapter 1, I mean Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2 where it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Therefore, you'll be able to approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God uses his word to transform our minds so that we won't be pressed into the mold and conformed to the way this world is. So my prayer for you as we're going through the Gospel of Mark, that you'll read it, you'll reread it, and that it, as it gets in, into you, it will begin to work on you. Uh, it will begin to transform you, transfer your mind, the way you think, the way you see the world. So please do that as we move through the Gospel of Mark. Now, verse 23 of chapter 2. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the, the grain fields, and as they... He and his disciples made their way through the grain field. They began, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, saying to, his, uh, to the Pharisees, said, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, they meaning the religious leaders, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered, withered hand, come here. And he said to them, to the religious leaders who were there watching him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, what we, what we know not teach us what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. Lord, we know that most of the time we don't measure up, and we struggle with not being what we know we should be. So God, help us to take what you've given us in your word, apply it to our lives, internalize it, and allow it to change us by your Holy Spirit, change us so that we might be more of what you want us to be, and so make a difference in this world. Thank you again for the time that we have together to walk through the scriptures. Bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's, let's get a little bit of help here with some of the terms that we, we've uh, looked at in, in this scripture. Some of them might be a little confusing to you. And, and I just read over them. And, and you might be like, well, what is that? I don't get that. I don't understand. If, and so I'm, I'm going to slow down and, and kind of take some of these words out and explain them so it'll be a little bit easier to grasp actually where these people are in understanding what Jesus is saying. There's, there's a bunch. I'm going, to, I'm going to pull out three that I think will help us a little bit. First word is the word Sabbath, all right? Okay, the word Sabbath is confusing, I think, because it's part of an ancient and current practice 
of Judaism, okay? Uh, we're, we're Christians. We're not necessarily, I think probably most of us in here are not Jewish. Maybe there's some Jewish brothers with us today, but if you are, thank you for helping us get to Jesus. Thanks. Uh, so, because Jesus was Jewish, that's awesome. Uh, so, but they, they practice the Sabbath, and, uh, and they still do. And it just means, the word means stop working, rest. That's all it means. It's the very foundation. That's what Sabbath means. And it's essentially a day set aside by God for rest and service to God. The Sabbath lasts from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. The practice dates back to the ancient Hebrews, as noted in the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, you'll probably remember. And let me go ahead and read that. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11. I believe it'll be on the screens. You don't have to look it up. It should be there for you. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall, do, you shall not do any work. You, your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So you'll notice in that commandment, Moses, who, who wrote down the commandments for us, refers to the account of creation where God rested after he finished the work of creating. So let's read that. Let's go back and read that and dig a little bit more into what the Sabbath is. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work and all that he had done in creation. So the Sabbath day, a special day, a holy day set aside in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, for God's people to rest and to worship. So there's a long-standing tradition, a long-standing law for the Hebrews to rest and worship on the Sabbath. So hopefully that's a little more clear as we read through and kind of dissect what we're talking about today in Mark chapter 2 and 3. Now, the second word, the next word, maybe a little bit confusing, is the bread of presence, all right? The bread of presence, a.k.a. the showbread. If you look it up, that's what you'll find. So in researching the showbread that Jesus referenced here, I found it's a particular type of bread that's used in Jewish worship. Worship. It symbolized the goodness and generosity of God. Uh, now, it would be baked and placed on a table in the Jewish place of worship, whether it was the tabernacle or it was the, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the showbread consists of 12 loaves of bread. Now, get this. It's really, really big. It's a big loaf of bread, okay? Each one weighs 11 pounds each. Okay, I don't know if you have any reference for this or not, but I looked it up. I had to look it up. Okay, well, how much does a regular loaf of bread that we get weigh? And it was like a pound, a pound and a half maybe for like Wonder Bread or whatever. I wish I had some to show you. But I mean, this is a pound or pound and a half. If I'd have thought about it, yeah, I'd have done the object lesson. But so this is an 11 times the size of that for one of these 12 loaves. That's still a lot of bread, enough to feed an army, it seems. So either it's a really dense, it could be a really dense loaf of bread. I mean, like, but it was, it was, it was enough to eat. So 108, um, if you're a math major, um, 12 times 11, you got what, 121 pounds of bread. That's a lot of bread, right, Michael? Yep, okay. So um, it, it's enough to feed an army, and that's exactly what David did. 
That's exactly what David did when he ate the showbread that Jesus is referring to as he answers his accusers. So there you go. Now, the final word that may give us a little bit of pause is the word synagogue. Not simply uh, the place of worship for the Jewish people. Like we have this place to worship. They had the synagogue. Okay, and so that's where they gathered. Kind of the neighborhood, church, the neighborhood church, right? Okay, so I think we're all up to speed on some of the confusing terms. So what does all this mean? Okay, what, what is the gospel of Mark relating to us at this point in Jesus' ministry? We're still fairly early on in Jesus' ministry, so let's get a picture of where we are. Jesus is already established that he's come to introduce a different way of doing things. Already done that, right? In previous verses, he's talked about new wine and unshrunk patches of cloth to describe the newness of his message. He's established authority over sickness and spiritual evil, okay? He's established that he's, he has God's ability to forgive sin. He's been called by Mark in the initial verses of his gospel, the son of God, and he's been labeled by the demons that he cast out, the holy one of God. Okay, so yes, Jesus is bringing a new and living way, and here is no different. He is challenging the religious establishment, and so how so? You see, the Sabbath command to rest and worship had long been accepted by the Jews. And yes, there are many times in the past, the history of the Jewish people, where they weren't as committed to celebrating the Sabbath. They would just kind of work and do whatever they were worshiping Baal and the Asherah poles. And they were doing all that in the Old Testament. And the prophets would call them back to Sabbath adherence, call them back to the, fe the festival days and call them back to all the things that were written in God's law. But at this point in the history of the Jewish people, they were really committed. In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees were the watchdogs of Sabbath adherents. And that's who we're talking, to, talking about here, the Pharisees. They were the watchdogs, and they wanted to make sure they got it right. They wanted to make sure uh, that, that they got Sabbath rest and worship right. So over the years, in an, in an effort to, and some of you guys might kind of relate to this, in an order in order to have an effort to clearly define what it means to rest and worship on the Sabbath, these religious leaders wrote down and debated and discussed what it actually meant to be faithful to observe the Sabbath. They wanted to be perfectly clear. So if you're not supposed to work, what exactly comprises work? What does that mean? When, you, when do you cross over the line from rest to work? Okay, so they wanted to make it clear, explicit, no room for question. You do this and you're being obedient. Some of you guys are like, yeah, I'm all for that. I want a rule where I can check it off and like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it right. I'm doing it right. How many people are, some people are, yeah, you're like your rule followers. I'm a rule follower. I like it. Yeah, it's good. It makes it very clear. No, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. These rules were not given by God. They were debated, discussed and written down by these religious leaders over the years. And so they were created by men, and they had become burdensome. They had become burdensome. They did not result in rest and worship, right? These extra rules, although they may have been made initially with good intentions, these extra rules had become a load too heavy to bear. They didn't result in rest. They resulted in deprivation in people's lives, neglect of the greater things of the law, like mercy and grace. So in our verses, the religious leaders are criticizing Jesus for allowing his disciple to pick heads of grain and eat the kernels. In the religious leaders' minds, Jesus' disciples were harvesting, and harvest is clearly breaking the Sabbath. So they called them out, and they called Jesus out. You're their leader. 
Why are they harvesting? Why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? So <laughs> I love what Jesus does. He's just incredible in, in the way that he approaches these guys. He, he walks them through the story of David and the bread of presence. He says, he says, have you never read your Bible? Hey, these are the religious leaders. I mean, they're constantly reading the Bible. They're scribes. They're actually constantly writing the Bible. He's like, have you never read your Bible? So it's, it's really kind of, it's kind of like asking these guys in here, you never watched football before? You know, that sort of thing. Because you watch football. You watch football? What? Yeah, I watch football. Okay. That would have been what this would have been like. Okay. So you never read your Bible. So he walks them through the story and David and the bread of presence. David and his companions could eat the forbidden bread when they were hungry. So Jesus and his disciples could eat a few grains of wheat on the Sabbath day when they were hungry. He puts them in their place. How does he do that? He points out that he, Jesus, calls the shots when it comes to the Sabbath behavior. Jesus says that his disciples are blameless as they're picking and eating when they're hungry, just as David was blameless and his followers, his army, when they, when they took the showbread, the bread of presence. Additionally, Jesus builds on his claims from earlier in the gospel. Not only is he the Holy One of God, as recognized by the demons that he cast out, not only is he the Son of God, as Mark claimed in the first few verses of the gospel, not only does he claim, lay claim to the title of the Son of Man from the writings of the prophet Daniel, Not only does he have the power to forgive sin and to make the paralyzed to walk and cleanse the leper, but also in these verses, he claims the title, Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the two titles that really stick out in here, uh, they're not wasted on these these religious leaders, all right? When he calls himself the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, he's calling himself the one beside God, the Ancient of Days, as described in the prophet Daniel's writings Daniel chapter 7. Now, you can go and look at that on your own. That's your homework. Go read Daniel chapter 7. But what that's describing is Daniel seeing the Ancient of Days and one who was like a son of man coming up and being beside him on a throne. All right, so that's what you see there. This is Messiah literature. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah by taking on this title, the Son of Man. It's not wasted on these religious leaders. And then the Lord of the Sabbath... All right, this is God's title alone. God's title alone. When Jesus claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath, have authority over the Sabbath, he's claiming equal footing with God. Now, this is something I know that we moderns really want to happen in the scriptures, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in the writings of Paul. We really want Jesus just to come out and say, I'm God. You, you just want the apostles to say, he's God, you know? You just want that. But here's, that's not how Jesus and the apostles communicate the es- his essence of being God in the flesh, because we understand that to be true. He is one person in the Godhead Trinity, God the Son, okay? But he doesn't communicate that in the way that we want him to. We just, just make it explicit, just make it clear, make it completely clear. He does it this way. He communicates it by taking on those descriptors from the Old Testament that equate him with God. These titles in this story and others communicate that he, here can communicate that. And, and there are others. I encourage you to chase some of those down, like the I am passages in, in the book of John. Those are clearly connected to the I am statement that 
God made to Moses at the burning bush. When they ask you who sent you, say, I am sent you. And Jesus said, I am, I am, I am, I am. All the way through the book of John. John, there's all, it's all through the gospels, all through the New Testament letters. It's all there. It's a matter of going and digging it up. They're like, you know those little blue pieces of um, text that are on your web pages? And they're, uh, they're called hyperlinks. You click them and it goes to another thing. Click it and it goes to another thing. You, you done that before? Yes. You with me? Yes, good. Okay, very good. Making sure. Okay, so that's what these are. These are hyperlinks back to what's going on in the Old Testament, all right? And so we want him to say it explicitly, and he does, but he does it in the way that you do it in Jewish literature, okay? He communicates it by taking on these descriptors in the Old Testament, and there are others. Just look them up. Look at them and and find. You'll find many. It's going to deepen your understanding of who Jesus is and his claims about himself. Now, when we truly understand these statements... We find ourselves in agreement with great Christian teachers like C.S. Lewis, who uh, stated in his work, Mere Christianity. Let me just uh, do a little pause. Mere Christianity. Great book. Uh, now, you probably know C.S. Lewis wrote uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, on which the um, movies are based back in, I think, the 2000s or something like that. It's, it's great animated stuff, CG stuff, anyway. But this is one of his books. It's based on some radio broadcasts that he did. Uh, explaining Christianity to his audience. And it's all compiled here, mere Christianity. We'll take a quote out of here, okay? So it's great. So listen, uh, quote begins here. Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim as God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. At this place in his ministry, Jesus is continuing to push the ball down the field, Super Bowl reference, push the ball down the field, in regard to revealing himself to those who would follow him. He's, he's gradually showing himself to his disciples and to his accusers. He's gradually showing himself, okay? And so you'll, ins- <laughs> you'll see that Jesus was intentionally in this next section poking the bear as he continues to show himself, all right? Uh, he's picking a fight with the re- religious establishment. And some of you are like, yeah, okay? So he's, he's starting to pick a fight, which you'll see in Luke chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. So let me read that. I mean, let me, let me go over that. Okay, so if you're, if you're looking at it, it says Jesus is entering the synagogue, okay? But in Luke, it says that he's teaching also. He's not just going there to sit and watch, but in Luke, the, the version of this in Luke says that he's actually teaching. It may be implied here, but it's actually uh, explicit in Luke. It's also in Matthew chapter 12. So if you want to read the different versions of the story, you can go there and check those out too. On your own. More homework. Okay, so here we go. Uh, so he's te- it says he's teaching, and it seems that the man with the withered, withered ham is part of Jesus' lesson. Yes? He says, come and stand here. 
It's almost like a case study, like an object lesson, all right? You take the experience of, of one person and, and you tell the scenario, what's going on, and use it to teach a broader concept. So he asks, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And Jesus looks around. Uh, and the, the gospel writers express two emotions that he's feeling here, that, that, that Jesus, were going on in the heart of Jesus. And they're anger and grief. Anger and grief. Now, some, some people may feel a little funny with the whole Jesus felt anger and grief. Well, here's the deal. Jesus was God and he was human. God and the God-man. So he's feeling those things that you feel. You felt anger before? Yes. Jesus felt that. You felt grief before? Some of you felt deep and abiding grief. Jesus felt that. That's how he can connect with us. But in this point, he is connecting with some anger and some grief, and, and they, he tells us why. Why? Why does the gospel writer say? It says, because of the hardness of their hearts, the hardness of the hearts of the religious leaders. They lacked compassion, mercy, grace, empathy, and love. They, the religious leaders, who claimed to represent God himself were displaying callousness to those who hurt and apathy to those who were in need. Jesus was angry and grieved. Now, I'm thinking, just picturing all this in my mind. Okay, so Jesus is standing there, man with a withered hand. All around him are normal people from the area, but there's these religious leaders, these you know highfalutin guys with their robes and stuff like that. And he's Poking the bear, like I said. He's like, is it right to do good or harm? To kill or to save a life? This had to be an intense moment. I mean, the stairs. Can you imagine the stairs? Have you ever been in a situation where something's about to go down? Some, you're, like in a, okay, you're like in a restaurant or some public place, and two people get up in there, and you're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? You know, like, it's going to go down. It's a really awkward, tense moment. Okay? But, but, it doesn't break loose right there. It doesn't break, break loose right there. The leaders at once empty their chairs and storm out. I can just imagine it. You know, they stand up real quick and their chairs kind of slide back. I don't know what kind of chairs they had. Maybe they were like this. I don't know. But they stand up and they immediately go out. Those were fighting words. What Jesus said were fighting words. And their reaction, what they do next, no joke. No joke at all. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. That's a very strong word. They, they did not want Jesus around. And the Herodians, those were, those were not religious guys. Those were guys connected to Herod. Herod was the puppet king set up by the Romans who were the invading army, right? Okay, so what we've got here is we've got politics going on. We gotta get rid of this guy. We need some help. We don't like these guys, but we're going to talk with them. It sounds familiar, right? You know, sometimes that happens on Capitol Hill. You know, we don't like these guys, but we got to get something done, so we're going to talk with them. You know, they're crossing the aisle. You've heard of that. They're crossing the aisle to talk with the Herodians and try and figure out, okay, where do we go from here? What can we do about this guy? The die is cast. Jesus will be killed. They've made up in their mind. They're going to, they, they just weren't angry at him. They wanted him dead. And they set in motion the plot against Jesus which would end the cross of Calvary, where he, would, where he knew he would go. The Bible says that from the foundation of the world, Jesus is called the Lamb of God 
who is slain from the foundation world. And you'll see that in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. God had all this in mind from the beginning. But just to me, that just inside, that blows my mind. I really can't understand how God's sovereignty and the choice of these men to sin by plotting the murder of Jesus, I don't understand how that goes together and how he can know all that would happen and his plan was coming together all along. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. I know that God calls to each one of us. And he says, whoever will may come. We read in the Gospel of John that to as many as received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So where do we land with this? Here's our conclusion. Each of us must look at the account, did you hear, in Mark, and ask, what is God teaching me to do next? What's God teaching me to do? Maybe in this account you hear God teaching you that you've been like one of the Pharisees. It's hard, but maybe that's what God is. You've been following the rules, but you've lost the true meaning of what it means to follow Jesus. You become a rule follower instead of a follower of Jesus. Okay? Maybe it's caused you to have a judgmental attitude of others. You need a come, a come to Jesus moment, maybe. You ask for forgiveness and turn to him for a new direction, new heart, heart of love, compassion, mercy and grace, empathy. There, there, God says that he wants to give his people a, a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. I think that's what the, the Pharisees had, very much, a heart of stone. Maybe in, the, in this account you hear the importance of true worship and rest in the rhythm of your life. You are worn out. You're too busy. You work all the time. You don't have time to experience true worship, true rest. The wisdom of the Sabbath is there for us today. Now, we don't, we don't practice a Jewish Sabbath, Friday night to Saturday night. We don't, we don't do that. Um, but we can learn wisdom from that rhythm where we carve out time in our weekly rhythm to be with God's people, to serve God through corporate worship, and to be refreshed in our spirit the fellowship with the body of Christ. Some of you miss out on that blessing. God wants you to have that blessing. Not as an oppressive system of rules and regulations. Not just to cross another thing off the list. But to truly experience God regularly in rhythm with his people. There's, there's, there's nothing like experiencing God in the presence of his people. It's different from that experience of God that you have in your daily walk with, with God or, or out in the woods or on the, the lake or whatever. It's different. It's different. God calls us to this type of gathering and worship regularly. And if you're missing out on that, you're missing out. Maybe God's calling you to that, to, to, to really consider, how can I do this in my life? Maybe this account of you see yourself as a person with a withered hand. You're hurting. Maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually. Jesus wants to offer himself to you. Begin with a relationship with him. The person with the withered hand needed healing. 
And Jesus gave that to him. It didn't matter. Um, it didn't matter what day it was. Jesus says the same thing to you. Come to me. I can bring you wholeness. Are you broken today? Do you need Jesus to make you whole? To give you, to give yourself to him in repentance for your sin and faith for salvation. To believe what he did for you by dying on the cross for your sin and rising from the dead to display his power over all. Proving once and for all that he is Lord. Today we talked about him as Lord of the Sabbath. Receive him as Lord of your life. Receive him and believe him as your Savior and Lord. Now if God is teaching you about any of these decisions and you feel the need to pray with someone or speak to someone when the service is over in just a few minutes, I'll, I'll be in the back, back there. And I'll be glad to, to talk with you and pray with you, help you in any way that I can. Let's, uh, let's pause for prayer before we have some time again to worship together. Please pray with me. Lord God, we ask you to take your word and to teach us. Help us to take what we've learned today and apply it to our lives. I pray that your word would be like a seed that would land on our hearts. I pray that our hearts would be like good soil that receives the seed of your word, allowing it to grow deep roots down in our hearts. There would be a harvest in us, the world around us. There would be a harvest of faith, repentance, compassion, mercy, grace, and love. For those of us who have been rule followers, God, instead of followers of Jesus, forgive us. Help us to follow Jesus with our whole hearts. For those of us who have neglected you because of work or other activities, forgive us. For those of us who have been beaten down, broken by the world, who need wholeness through your saving grace, we ask that you make the old pass away and make us new creations in Christ. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your salvation through Jesus and all he has done for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Thank you for your salvation in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.